0: The book of Matthew is found on page 959 of your pew Bible and uh, we won't be starting quite there as we look at text we'll probably start on page 960 but uh, before we get to the temptation of Jesus which we are going to talk about uh, I want to just kind of give you a broad spectrum of the Gospel of Matthew it is the first New Testament book that doesn't mean it was the first one that was written but as the church began to collect the writings of the apostles, as the letters of Paul and the letters of Peter and these gospels, these histories written by eyewitnesses of the events, as they began to collect them, Matthew always showed up first. Why? What makes it better than John? In fact, I think most people who go to be a pastor someday, if you ask them their favorite gospel, they're gonna say, John, John's amazing. And Mark is kind of forgotten, and Luke, that's ah, fine, but oh, John, and what of Matthew? Yeah. But why? It's not about style, right? It's not about what you like. It's about the idea that Matthew's gospel was initially an instruction manual for Christians, or the word we would use as Lutherans is Matthew's the first catechism. Now, that word catechism is a confusing word. We don't always use it the same way, and we certainly don't use it the way the early church did. We use it to mean a very specific now purple book with stuff written by Dr. Martin Luther in it and a whole bunch of other stuff published by the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod in 1918. That's what most of us think of when we say catechism. But the word just is the word teaching, and it comes from the idea of taking the teaching of the Bible— and making it very simple and very available to you so you could remember it. Now, any of you who've gone through that 1918 back end of the catechism know it's not exactly simple. (laughs) Uh, it's, It's a little overly complicated sometimes. That doesn't make it bad. It makes it like an encyclopedia of biblical questions. That's great. But the catechism is instruction in the basics of Christianity and really isn't about even Dr. Martin Luther's words. What does this mean? We should fear love and trust in God above all things. Those are good words, but that's not really what the idea of catechism gets at. The main thing is that you're going to take the scriptures and boil them down to their summary. So for Lutherans and for Luther himself, his commentary on the catechism is a commentary on the Ten Commandments, the Creed as a summary of the life of Christ, and the Lord's Prayer. All things which you will find ultimately in the book of Matthew. So before the medieval church began taking the creed and the apostle, excuse me, the the Ten Commandments and the creed and the Lord's Prayer and having the laity memorize those things because those are the basics of Christianity, they first, early on, received the Gospel of Matthew and used it with regularity to instruct the people how to be disciples in Jesus. And for that reason, actually, let's start today at the very back of Matthew's gospel. If you found the gospel, just flip through it um, until you find chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. These are very famous verses. If you've been in a Lutheran church uh, in the last century, you have to have heard this at some point. Uh, This is on page 993. This is often called the Great Commission. It's the end of the gospel Jesus has done all things he has risen from the dead he is about to ascend into the highest heaven and he says to his 12 disciples minus one Judas is no longer with them it's the 11 now but you can see that in verse 16 he says in verse 19 go therefore and make disciples of all nations that's kind of the command or the directive And some people wanna emphasize the go, the emphasis in the Greek's not on the go, it's on the make disciples. Discipline people, instruct them. The rest of the verse is about what that looks like. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. How do you instruct people in Christ? You wash them in his name, that's first. And then second, verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So along with washing you in Jesus' name, you are to be taught everything that he said and to hold on to everything that he said because it'll be like being a person who builds your house on a rock as opposed to someone who builds your house on the sand. And there's a promise that goes with this, that when you are baptized into Christ and believe what he says, behold, I am with you, plural, You as a group, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, again, I want to emphasize this word disciple and discipline. For the last century or so, not only in Lutheran churches, but I think in most American churches, going and making disciples has been heard as if it's about taking non-Christians and making them Christians. As if it's about evangelism or conversion And don't get me wrong, I like conversion. I am happy when people hear about Jesus and believe it for the first time. But that's not what this text is primarily emphasizing. It's emphasizing that all who believe in Jesus are to be believers in what he said. And so if you are a Christian, to be a disciple is to be disciplined by his words. And again, that's what this entire book of Matthew is about. It's about disciplining you in the words of Jesus. Now, the word discipline is often heard by people as a law word. You better do this. And if you've got kind of a American Lutheran law gospel understanding, you're going to remember that the law is bad and the gospel's good, right? Except that's not true. The law is good and the gospel's good. The law tells you how life's supposed to be. The gospel tells you what Jesus has done for you. So to be disciplined in Jesus is to believe both those things, that God has saved you not by your own reason or strength, not by works done by you in righteousness, but by his holy precious blood and redeeming you by sending you the Holy Spirit into your heart. He has awakened you to look back at the law, which had condemned you. And if you're judged by it on judgment day, will condemn you since you know you're not going to be judged that way. You can look back at the law and see how good it is. You can see how good it is to love God above all things, even though you fail at it. You can still want it. You can see how good it is to love your neighbor as yourself, even though you fail at it. You can still want it. So to be a disciple in Jesus is to desire these things, these words. And the book of Matthew, again, is the church's primary place for saying, are you a Christian now? Then here is where to start. Start with these words one of the ways you can see why they did this or why Matthew was written for this is that the entire book is built around five discourses. It's a kind of fancy scholastic term, five sermons, five long places where Jesus just talks. There's five of them. So if you have a red letter Bible and you flip through, you'll be able to see that there's a little bit of stuff that Jesus does and then he talks for like three chapters. And there's like a little bit of stuff that Jesus does. And he talks for like a chapter and a half. There are five of these. And in the later service, we're going to look at those a little bit more directly. At the midweek services, again, I'll try to pull some of that information out. We're not going to focus on that today. But I know that you know the first one. You've heard of it. It's the most famous sermon he ever preached. It's called the Sermon on the Mount, right? Yeah, so that's the first Matthean discourse. There are five of them. They build the entire story. The story also follows four shifts or four transitions about Jesus' life. And I won't go through where they all happen. but they begin, There it begins with his presentation. You have a, a Christmas narrative in Matthew. You have him coming to be baptized by John. He starts his ministry. So that's the first part of the story. And after he is brought and presented to the world, the second part of the story is the rise of the Christ. And I don't mean from the dead. I mean, there's a whole section where everybody loves Jesus. Oh, he's just great. Everyone's coming to him. He's popular. He's healing people. They're listening to him. They're in awe. It's just amazing. He gets better and better. And then there's a third part. It shifts. Suddenly, it's not that nobody loves Jesus, but the people that are talking don't love Jesus. There's conflict. And there's the downfall of the Christ. There's the bringing of him into trial and suffering. And then that leads to the final part, which is his death death. And resurrection, the passion of the Christ. So the book is built around, again, the presentation of the Christ, the rise of the Christ, the fall of the Christ, and the resurrection of the Christ. While he gives these five sermons that we are to believe on as truth, as we trust in what he achieved for us. What he achieved for us, then, one more major theme to just kind of hold in your mind, and we'll see this as we look at the text that we're going to look at today, that what Jesus is doing this entire time is he is invading hostile territory. Now, it's pretty easy to make a connection to the news today with that one, where a bigger country is inv- invading a smaller country, and the smaller country is hostile to that bigger country right now. Uh, it's kind of like that. Only what you would have to do to make the metaphor work, and therefore it's kind of a bad metaphor, Ukraine would have to be the planet, huh? And Ukraine's president would have to be the devil, which I don't know him from Adam, so I couldn't tell you one way or the other, huh? but it's the metaphor again. And that you know, Jesus would be Putin. I mean, again, the metaphor really breaks down, doesn't it? Um, but you, the idea, again, is that you have this external greater power, heaven, that's going to invade this small rebellious country, earth, and take on its leader and destroy him in order to bring earth back to heaven. So this is the invasion of the kingdom of God into the devil's rebellious territory. And Christ will regularly talk about this kingdom, this reign, this power that he has, which before he said, go into all nations, do you have it memorized enough to know? He says, all authority in heaven and earth have been given to me, right? He is the king. He is the Lord of lords. And he is here from the beginning, holding that position. Uh, It's not like he earned that at the cross. He became the king of men, the king of the Jews on the cross. But he doesn't have to earn the sonship of God. He comes with that. And so he goes again to invade us, literally us, our hearts, with his Holy Spirit in order to bring us back to God as his captives. But to be a captive to Christ is a good thing when you've formerly been enslaved to the devil. All right. There's a whole bunch of other pieces to this that over the, the next few weeks at the midweek, we'll, we'll talk about it to really bring out the different elements of, uh, of Matthew's gospel. You have a whole sermon on the parables where you have uh, the sower, the tares, the seed, the leaven, right? Maybe you remember some of those. So that's what you can look forward to at our midweek services. Today, what I want to focus on is the seven first words of Jesus in Matthew. Again, if you have a red letter Bible, you can see it. It kind of jumps out that the story begins and he doesn't talk a lot at first. There's just these punch, punch, punch sentences that come until the seventh word, the seventh time he talks is the Sermon on the Mount. So he says six things and then he preaches, blessed are the poor in spirit. What I want to do today is go through those seven different things and try to pull out some of their meaning because, well, when you find something that happens seven times in the Bible, it's not accidental, That that's first, right? Seven is the number of holiness. It's what the created week is. In six days, he, he made the earth, and on the seventh day, he rested, and he declared that day to be holy. And so the seven is a number of holiness. You see this in the temple and the way it was built. There's all these sevens built into it to show how it's a place that is set apart. So the first seven words of Jesus are holy. They're set apart. And they're going to give you its own kind of catechism. I don't mean to replace the catechism. I mean, it's a special type of teaching to give you a summary of Christianity in order that you might observe it with your heart. Okay, so that's our goal for today. The first time Jesus talks in the Gospel of Matthew is in Matthew chapter 3, verse 15. Uh, this will be on page 961. This is at his baptism. Remember that John the Baptist, his cousin, has come baptizing a baptism of repentance in which Jews are going out to a river to be washed by him. This is super weird because baptism already exists in the Jewish religion, but Jews never get baptized. Baptism is what they do to non-Jews who want to become Jews. And you never really get to become a Jew. You just get to observe Judaism. But the path to that is baptism. And now here's this Jew who looks like Elijah because he's got the clothing and he's got the spirit out by a river, giving this baptism for the heathen to the Jews. And this is why the Pharisees go out and are like, what are you doing, man? Who, who told you to do this? Now, into that place, Jesus shows up. And John himself seems to be a little unaware of what to do. If you look at verse fourteen, chapter three, verse fourteen, he says, uh, "John would have prevented him, as he would." He said, "No, I shouldn't baptize you, Jesus." Saying, "I need to be baptized." Remember that means washed. I need to be washed by you. And do you come to me? And then Jesus speaks his first words in the gospel. Jesus answered in verse fifteen let it be so now, that's just two words in Greek, office, Arte." let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And he's done talking, John consents and baptizes him. And there's some theology here that we can get into. Why? Why does he get baptized? It's because he's taking your sins on himself. It's a baptism only for sinners. Here's a man who's sinless willing to endure it. Why? He's standing in your place. Yeah. He's adopting the mantle of fallen creation. Here is Adam restored and willing to fight not only for himself but for everybody else. So that's that's the why. But I want to look at his actual words though, because they're just so powerful on their own. Let it be so now. Office if you were to translate that very directly, it's let go now. I remember uh, kind of a a chintzy, a cheesy movement in American Christianity. You've probably heard it. There's even a song that's kind of popular that, that sings it right now. Let go and let God. You ever hear that? Let go and let God. The idea is just, you know, stop trying so hard and God will make it all okay. And Lutherans tend to not like these kinds of things because we can figure out how it can be misunderstood. And then we want to warn everybody about how it could be misunderstood. And it's true, it's true. Uh, If if let go, let God means do whatever you want, it's all gonna be great. You know, Bob Marley, no worries kind of thing. It's it's quite wrong, But, but it's actually what he says too. Let go now. And what he means is stop trying to be the one who understands and knows everything yourself. Now, think of that as the first part of Matthew's catechism. He comes out of the gate and says, stop trying to be in charge. Stop trying to run everything. Stop thinking you have to understand everything. You're staring your Savior in the face. He's going to do something, and you're trying to stop him. Why? Doesn't he know? Remember how Peter, in this very gospel, will confess Jesus to be the Christ. Christ will say, I'm going to go die, and Peter will say, no, you won't. And what does Jesus say to him then? Get behind me, Satan. Right? Same idea here. Right? Jesus knows what he's doing. Let go now. Let him be God, for it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. That word fitting, I would translate that word as beautiful. Let go now, for it is beautiful. And think of this not as everything is beautiful no matter what, but how Christ standing in the place of sinners is beautiful. And that is what makes everything beautiful no matter what because Christ standing in the place of sinners has turned even your suffering into merely God's discipline of you as he binds you to himself so that through faith you endure that suffering walking toward the resurrected life which you know is coming. So that in everything right now you can let go because it is beautiful because God's in charge. Because Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again, yes? Let go now, for it is beautiful for us to fulfill all righteousness. So the beautiful thing that Jesus is going to do, that he's including John in, he's including you in, is the fulfillment of all righteousness. What's righteousness? It's a word that means goodness, or justice, or things being the way they ought to be. And he again says, now you let go, And we, by what I do, will make righteousness flow like a river. It's all going to be amazing. I will take care of it. First thing he says, first word of Christ. The second time Jesus will speak in the book of Matthew is chapter 4, verse 4. This is the first of those temptation responses that we heard read a moment ago. And you heard how he went out into the wilderness for 40 days and fasted. As a, what, completion of, a a, a reflection of the children of Israel in the wilderness for 40 years. After they refuse to go into the promised land, they can't enter paradise, even though it's promised to them. So they get sent out to the wilderness. And so Jesus, who has no business standing in the place of sinners on his own right, decides to do so anyway. And he goes out into the wilderness. And he joins with us in our curse. And while he is there in that wilderness wandering, the tempter himself comes, the devil himself comes, and begins to try to do the same thing which he did to Adam, which is to get Jesus, the man, to believe the devil's words rather than God's words. And the first word that he wants Jesus to doubt is that Jesus is the Christ. And that's why he says, the devil says in verse 3, If you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. The problem is not that Jesus would eat bread or that Jesus would turn something into bread. He'll do that later for 5,000 people. He'll take five loaves of bread and make a whole bunch more. That wasn't a sin. The problem is why, the motivation here. And what the devil wants to do is get Jesus to try to prove himself to the devil. Another way to say that is he wants Jesus to justify himself to the devil. That's the temptation for Jesus to doubt himself as God enough to justify himself to his enemy and thereby admit his enemy's words are more true than his own. Now, Jesus responds then with 4 verse 4, and he teaches us now, now that you've let go of you being God, now that you're going to live a life of catechism in Christianity, what do you do? You don't speak for yourself. You quote the Bible, yeah? He answered, it is written. Not I think, not I want, not I feel. It is written. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So what's written? That the Bible is trustworthy and that it's for us to live on. It's written that it's written. That we should know what is written, yeah? And in that, we are able to join Jesus in his trust. What Adam lost, trust in God. God restores trust in God through the written word, which is a sharp, double-edged sword, able to pierce through everything in this world, to cut the gray and latter haze apart and make it clear what is light and what is darkness. It also then emphasizes that you are to live from God rather than from yourself, And that what your experience will be is that God is going to provide for you what you need, that bread will no longer matter the way it did, but rather a greater bread will come. And so please do hear the symbolism of the bread and the wine, which becomes the meal from heaven, which indeed is not just bread, but bread and word. When you eat the Lord's Supper, you eat not only bread and wine, but you eat word a word that is a precious and very great promise because it's the word who became flesh and dwelt among us indeed it is his flesh dwelling among us right now so again the second word of jesus is it is written and then what is written you can trust what's written even when the devil stands against you with everything that he's got now The third word of Jesus is going to be in the same story. It's after the devil's response. Notice how wily the devil is. He says, oh, you want a little battle of wizards? You want want a riddle game? You can quote scripture. Guess what? So can I. And so the devil quotes two different places in the Old Testament, two different Psalms. If you are the son of God, notice the same doubt. Doubt yourself, Jesus. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down. Prove yourself, Jesus. Because the Bible says that God will command his angels to guard you. Notice what the devil is. He's an angel who's not guarding him. Like it's the very opposite of what's happening at that moment. Yeah, He's twisting this Bible like nobody's business. He will command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot. Notice the reference to Jesus' feet again. Lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now, does that mean that God has not promised these things to the Christ? No, this is exactly the promises to the Christ, that God will take care of him in all things, that he will be lifted up, lest he be destroyed, that he will not be given over to death, which is why Christ can enter death with confidence, knowing that it will not be the end of him, and that whatever is done to him is only for his glory. Again, it's about Jesus' trust in the word of God as a man where we had failed to trust as men, in our father Adam. Jesus responds then, again, here's now this third word. He says, again, it is written, right? You got Bible, I got Bible, but I got all the Bible. Again is written, you shall not put the Lord, your God, to the test. What I want you to hear in this bit is let go, trust in God, know what the Bible says, and stop trying to see if you can figure it out. Stop trying to find a way. Stop asking God to prove himself. He already has. Yeah? Now, as Jesus says this to the devil, there's a beautiful thing here where he says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, meaning I, Jesus the man, will not test my father because that would be to sin. But there's another side to this that I like even more. He's also saying, I, Jesus God, say to you, devil, you shouldn't test me. You don't have a right you're going to lose. And the devil doesn't really back off. We got the, uh, the fourth word here in verse 10, following what the devil says um, in verse 9. He says to Jesus, I'll give you everything. You're here to conquer the world. I'll, I'll give it to you. You just have to fall down and worship me. And to worship means to adore, to ascribe glory, to recognize the power thereof. And this is what the devil's been after from the beginning is our worship. The only way you worship God is by trusting his words. When we trust the devil's words, we indeed do worship him. Jesus says, again, it is written, but first, before he says that, he says, be gone, Satan. Uh He says to you, let go now. He says to Satan, get out of here. And that word is written for you to know that he has the power to drive the devil away from you. No matter what your trial or temptation, your inner monologue, your struggle might be, the fact is that Christ has you and he is there to drive the devil away from you. And these words that are written are there for you to freely say, be gone, Satan, to your own doubts, to your own struggles, to your own trials. Let go now for it is beautiful and be gone, Satan, are freely confessed by you in your prayers. And that's why I'm talking about it today. To know, again, this series of words is powerful. Powerful to strengthen your heart and your mind in Christ. And you can feel free to take them as your own. Be gone, Satan, he says. For it is written, because the Bible says so, right? You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Same double entendre going on here. I, Jesus the man, shall only worship my Father in heaven, and thereby do what Adam failed to do. And oh, by the way, you devil should worship me, not me worship you. And if you would have worshiped me, you would have understood and not fallen yourself. All right. Just a few minutes left here and two more, uh, three more words. So we'll go a little quickly. Um, The fifth word that Jesus speaks in the gospel of Matthew is chapter four, verse 17. So he has now Endured the temptation, he has emerged victorious, and he goes into Galilee and he begins to preach. And all of his preaching then is summarized in this one sentence, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's the invasion talk, right? There's the invasion talk. I'm here to invade this place and make it my own. So, everyone who hears that, repent which doesn't mean get on the ground and wallow. It means understand what's happening. Change sides. Admit right now what side you were on and gladly grab onto the fact you've been invited to repent of your treason, to turn away from your traitorous heart and to let go and believe that the word of God is sufficient in order to send Satan away from you and make you one who worships God now. That is what the kingdom is again. Those first four words are our kingdom now, a kingdom of worship, adoration, trust, and hope in Christ, being the one who has taken charge for us. That is what he begins to preach. The sixth word that Jesus speaks is in chapter 4, verse 19. After this preaching, he goes by a couple of fishermen they stand in for a whole bunch more who he will call to be his disciples. And he says to them in verse 19, um, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now the bit about being fishers of men is about knowing that when you believe in Jesus and speak the words of Jesus, it's like being part of a giant net being dragged through the sea to catch fish. And as you speak those words, other fish are gonna be caught in that net. But rather than focus on that, I want us today to just focus on the first part. Follow me. Follow me. Right? Make disciples of all nations. How? You, sell, you tell them, follow Jesus. And so that's, again, what I'm telling you now. That this gospel is here. The scriptures are here. St. Paul is here. That we would be people disciplined with the knowledge to turn away from a life that only listens to what the world says and follow Jesus by attending to his own words. And in following him, then we become members of his kingdom, people of his community, those who are bound to his very flesh and blood, which has already defeated death for us all. Follow me, Jesus says. And then the seventh word, which Jesus speaks, is chapter 5, verse 3. Chapter 5, verse 1 says he goes up on a mountain. He sees a bunch of crowds. Chapter 2 says he opens his mouth and he catechized them. He taught them. And so he says the first line that is the entire sermon, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is, blessed are the sinners. Blessed are those who have no heart. Blessed are those who have struggle and trial. Blessed are those who have no righteousness in themselves, because I, Jesus, am here to reign on your behalf. I am here invading the word world in order to make it my own again. And so as he will close the Beatitudes, blessed are you because you are the ones hearing these words of Jesus. So to review here in closing, seven words to begin the Catechism of Matthew. Let go now, for it is beautiful to know that Jesus is fulfilling all righteousness. You shall not live by what you put in your mouth, by what, but by what you put in your ears, which when it is the word of God will make you live forever and turn you into a person who stops testing God, stops asking him, why would you do this? Please won't you do that, but instead into a person who adores him. Who worships Him? Who knows that all things are made for your good? Who knows that repentance is the first step that is to realize He's in charge now, and the world's going to hell. So you are going to become a person who doesn't go to hell. He is going to bring you into His kingdom, and He says, "Follow Me." And as you follow Him, He says, "Blessed are you." Introduction to the Gospel of Matthew. I do hope you'll join us for the midweek services this year in the name of Jesus.